Last part of verse 31 there in chapter 27. Then they led him away to crucify him. This is where we pick it up. This is where we left off. They led him away to crucify him. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. It was full of shame. But for the joy set before him. Do you know what that joy was? The fact that you and I could be part of his family. That's the joy set before him. He, he went through all that. He endured that cross, all that suffering, the crucifixion, for the joy set before him that he might have fellowship with you and I, that you and I might have, have an open door to God in heaven through the cross and only through the cross. That's why when people say, you know, there's so many different ways and you can go this way and this way and this way, when you think about what Jesus Christ did and you say, well, that, you know, I'm going to go this other way here, it's like a slap in the face. A slap in the face that was, was, you know, bruised and beaten beyond recognition. Everything he went through, and, and for us to say, well, you know, that's really, you know, I'm going to do this over here. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's cruel, almost. Besides the fact that it's ineffective to go any other way, there is no other way to get to the Father but through Jesus Christ. David Guzik said that the march to the place of crucifixion was useful advertising for Rome. It warned potential troublemakers that this was their fate should they challenge Rome. And normally a centurion on horseback led the procession and the herald shouted the crime of the condemned. And Barclay says the criminal was led to the scene of crucifixion by as long a route as possible so that as many as possible might see him and take warning from the grim sight. This procession was part of the whole process. You see, they, they wanted to be on display. Again, it was like to put fear in people like, don't do anything against Rome or this is what might happen to you. Well, the truth is, is that death is awaiting all of us apart from what Jesus Christ did for us. And that, why, that is why it was done out in the open. That's why it was in a place, a public place where everyone could see. Look at verse 32. It says, as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They were going out, and they were talking about going outside the city gate. It says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the gate bearing the disgrace that he bore. We talked about his shame, but it was also disgraceful that he bore. But it was outside the gate because it says that the high priest would carry the blood of the animals into the most holy places of sin offering, but the bodies were burned outside the camp. It was too disgraceful to even have those inside the city gate. So Jesus, again, going out there in the most disgrace, disgraceful manner. But the writer of Hebrews says, let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. Let's go to him. Fix our eyes on him, he said. Go to him, he says. This is where our hope is in Jesus.
This man uh, from Cyrene, very interesting. You read some of these um, stories about some of these people here, and you have to kind of, like, you know, fill in some of the blanks. And I'm not saying make stuff up, but when you put together some of the scriptures, you see there's some interesting things that happen. And, and one day when we stand in heaven, I think we'll know all the answers. But this man from Cyrene, Simon, most likely he was in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. He had come from uh, uh, Cyrene, which is a city in what's now Libya. And he just happened to be passing by and they grabbed him. And it says they forced him to carry the cross. He didn't say, wow, I'd like to do that. No, that's a disgraceful thing to be carrying a cross. Again, it was, it was humiliating. And for him now to be forced into service to do something so humiliating, it wasn't something anybody would want to do. They, they grabbed him and they had the right, the Romans had this authority to do this. They grabbed him to carry this. And most likely it was the, it was the cross beam and it, it could weigh anywhere from 30 to really uh, 80, 90, even 100 pounds. Jesus had started out carrying it, it says in John 19, but uh, it appears that he was too weakened by this flogging. And again, he was beaten so beyond human recognition that he was too weakened by the flogging to continue carrying. He just could not do it. Physically, he was completely destroyed. Again, Flogging, in, in many cases, the, 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 uh, the prisoners, the criminals that were flogged, they would die from it. It was so brutal. But this guy, Simon, again, he's pressed into service. And Mark's gospel says that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And Mark kind of just puts that out there. It's almost as if he... He expects the people he's writing to to understand who Alexander and Rufus are. And there's two other places that, that speak about a guy named Alexander and a guy named Rufus in, in the book of Acts 19 and, and Romans 16. It, it, talking about believers there, it's very possible. Again, don't stone me for speculating here. But it's very possible that these were his children who became believers and that Simon was forced to carry the cross to Golgotha, but then perhaps he remained there. That's very plausible, wouldn't you think? He wouldn't, you know, I mean, after all this happening and seeing all this stuff that's going on, you know, he, you know you'd be like, well, what is this? Who is this guy that I was forced and humiliated to do this for? I, I have a little bit of interest, a curiosity even at least. Warren Wiersbe thinks that Simon came to Jerusalem to sacrifice his Passover lamb, and he met the lamb who, sacrificed, who was sacrificed for him. Very possible. I'm sure in one way or another his life was affected by this occurrence. It wasn't, you know, I mean, there, there, you can go like to strange, uh, you know, other speculations about this, but uh, like, you know, he, he saw it as a privilege when he was doing it. Well, it wasn't like that at all. Again, it was humiliating to have to be and do what he did. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, verse 27. <clears throat> Start in verse 26. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, they put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. 
A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. And Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Simon is seeing all this, hearing all this. But I find it interesting, this response of Jesus. The women, they were mourning and wailing for him. But what did he say to them? He said, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Don't feel bad for what I had to do. Feel bad for yourselves in the situation that you're in, that, that, that you need salvation. You need to find the Savior, and, and that's what he came to do and to be for you and for me. Back in Matthew chapter 27, verse 33, it says, They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. This Golgotha is from the, the, the uh, Aramaic language, which is very similar to Hebrew, uh, related to Hebrew, I should say, meaning the place of the skull, like it says right there. So you could figure that out too. That's how I figured it out. I just read what it said. That's what we call inductive Bible study. You read what it says and then, oh, yeah, the light comes on. It was the place of the skull in Latin. Does anybody know what the Latin word for that is? See if there's any biblical scholars here. Not a single one. The Latin word. How many of you know Latin? <laughs> you know, you used to, in kids, years and years ago, you used to learn Latin all the time. It was like, like that's what learning. The word in Latin is calvaria. Right? Now some of you remember, right? Calvaria, which is where we get the word Calvary, right. That's what we, we have it in our name of our church, Calvary Chapel, and that's all about that place, the place of the skull, that place where Jesus was crucified. It was an established place of execution. We don't know exactly where it is. There's different opinions about uh, ex the exact location of that. Some think it's the you know, inside what is now the city wall, which the city wall was smaller then, and the, the, uh, there's a big place there called the, oh, my brain has just gone blank. But I prefer the place outside the city gate called Gordon's Calvary, and some of you have seen pictures, I've had pictures of that before, and, you know, it's, it's kind of crumbling now, but there was, uh, if you look at some of the older pictures, you can see the image, and it looks like the image of a skull in the face of the cliff there. And right next to it, there is a tomb. It's very much like what the tomb would, would, would have been like. Whether that's the exact spot or not, we don't know. Whether they called it the place of the skull because so many people were executed there, that's a possibility as well. Still trying to think of the name of the church. You see, what happens is this other place is that they've built this church there, and it's kind of eerie, really. You go in there, it's extremely dark in there. It's a big, giant, uh, you know, like Catholic church, and, and you go in there, and it's, it's very eerie in there. I, I don't like that place at all, but maybe, that's, maybe that is the place. Verse 34 says, They offered Jesus 
wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And many of these, you know, these details, we've heard them, we know them. But again, this is what the account talks about. They had given him this wine mixed with this gall, which was like a, a painkiller of some sort, maybe a narcotic of some sort. It had that sort of effect to lessen the pain of the condemned. There were some that say, you know, that there were women who would come to this place and they would give them these drinks to prepare them for this. Others think it was, it was actually a, a, some kind of a drug to, to make them even feel it worse. I think it was probably some kind of a narcotic because he refused it. He refused it. He, he wasn't about to uh, dull or alleviate or mask the pain of the cross in any way. He had to drink that cup to the complete and full I was just thinking, though, about this idea about narcotics, though, too, and, and painkillers. And, and I certainly think they're useful in some cases, but we have seen in our society and so often the abuse. And really, I think what, at the heart of it is really this idea to, to take away the pain, to dull the pain of what life is, to escape it. But it really is no escape, you know because it just leads you from one hell into another hell. And many times a much, much worse. Rather, what we need to do is run to the Savior, run to Jesus, cry out to Him, the one who refused. Verse 35 says, When they had crucified Him, they divided up His clothes by casting lots. You notice the very simple words they say, when they had crucified him, that's the, that's the extent of it. They don't give any explanation. They don't elaborate on the fact of crucifixion. You can, you can read about it in much, much more detail what it was like. Perhaps they said it like this because in those days, everybody knew what it was all about. Everybody knew how bad it was. So they, they didn't need to go into any detail. But you and I, Obviously, we do not have any clue about that. One commentator, it says that eternity itself will not exhaust the depths of these words, of what took place at this crucifixion. Uh, it was the Roman form of execution uh, where people would be punished for crimes. They would be nailed to a cross of wood, heavy nails in the wrists and the feet. And, and uh, it's said that only slaves in the basest of criminals and offenders who were not Roman citizens were executed in this manner, in the agony and the disgrace of, us, disgrace of it. If you were a Roman citizen, you were, you were not allowed to be crucified, except perhaps in some extreme circumstances. Only slaves in the basis of criminals, offenders. They, they, it was like so disgraceful. But one commentator said this, Consider how heinous sin must be in the sight of God when it requires such a sacrifice. How heinous sin must be in the sight of God when it requires such a sacrifice. They crucified Him. 
And then it says they divided up his clothes by casting lots, his clothes that were covered in blood, the blood of Jesus. This, this was all his earthly possessions. That's all he had. That's all he had left. And the executioners, this was one of their perks, right, where they would, where they would get, this is what they would get. Any possessions that the person had, that, you know, that was like one of the perks or do, having to do this cruel and, and uh, horrible job. So they took these and they decided by lot. It was like a little gambling thing that happened. Who would get what? says in John that this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did, which fulfilled a prophecy in Psalm 22, the Psalm of the Cross. That's all that was left on this earth for him. A few pieces of clothing. How many of you ever saw the movie The Robe? Any of you seen that? Quite a few of you. I was thinking about that and I, and I, uh, I looked, I watched it and, uh, you know, it was made back in 1953 before I was born, but it was, it was, uh, the story was written by a guy who actually was a minister and so his spiritual background, it says, you know, he it, it was involved in a lot of things that he wrote and there was a woman who wrote to him asking, asking him what he thought had happened to Christ's garments after the crucifixion. This is how this, this movie came about. And, and so he, it says he began immediately working on a book about this, and he sent each chapter to this woman as he finished it, and, and then uh, dedicated the book to her in the end. And the plot goes like this. There was a Roman soldier whose name was Marcellus, and he wins Christ's robe as a gambling prize. And he then sets forth on a quest to find the truth about the Nazarene's robe, a quest that reaches to the very roots and heart of Christianity. Interesting. Don't know if it's true. But just like we talked about Simon of Cyrene and how he was affected by being there, you, you cannot help but think that those people were there. And we find it in one of the other Gospels and the, the statement that's made, you know, that this is the Son of God, of those looking up at him. But how they were affected by that. And, and again, these clothes were, were covered in blood. Even in this movie, The Robe, you watch it and it's a red robe and it looks like clean. It looks like it just came from the laundromat or something. But that's nothing like what it was there. And, and he kind of stretches, uh, you know, puts a little imagination on some of the things there. But, but in the end, he comes face to face with Jesus Christ and, and the forgiveness that came through that cross. And turns his heart and life. And in the end, he himself becomes a martyr for the cross, for his faith in Jesus Christ. David Guzik said Jesus came all the way down the ladder to accomplish our salvation. He let go of absolutely everything, even his clothes, becoming completely poor for us so we could become completely rich in him. Someone else said this, the, the one perfect life that has been lived in this world is the life of him who owned nothing and left nothing but the clothes he wore. That's radical. That is radical. The perfect life. He had nothing. And what he did have, the little he did have, he left it. 
Verse 36, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. I was struck by that verse. They sat down and they kept watch. And yeah, they had to, you know, guard the scene or whatever. That was part of their job. But I don't know. I think it was more than that. They just sat there and they watched. They were part of this whole situation. They sat and watched. But, but how much better it would be if they would kneel and worship. We don't know what happened to those men who were there, the ones that crucified him. We don't know what happened in their hearts and in their lives. But, but, but you and I are looking now at the cross, and for you and I, we can sit and watch. We can sit and just be on the sidelines and say, well, that's kind of cool. That's interesting. Or we can kneel before the cross of our Savior and surrender and worship him. One, one gets us nowhere, the other one gets us into heaven for eternity. Above his head, verse 37, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. They would also have that written on a board, carried before him, and then they would nail it to the cross above his head. It says in John 19, uh, many of the Jews read this sign. It was for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city in a public place. It was open. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And the chief priests of the Jews, they protested to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. They tried to fight, fight about that. This, you know, Pilate Again, we, we talked about him in an earlier study, but he saw that he saw there was something about this man, Jesus. What I have written, I have written, the King of the Jews. Verse 38, and two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. I think, and I, I think it's clear when you look at this, that they were more than just robbers because at that time robbery was not enough for execution, neither is it today. But this same term that is used for them is the same term that was used of this guy Barabbas, which was, uh, you know, insurrectionist or a revolutionary or rebel that, that they had the same thing. And again, uh, as I mentioned earlier, they most likely were part of this whole thing that Barabbas was a part of and that, that when Barabbas was set free and Jesus took his place, Jesus literally took the place of Barabbas. But does it not make you think, though, about these two, one on the right and one on the left, make you think about James and John, the two disciples, and the mother came to Jesus, and, and what did she say? She asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus kind of gave an a, a unusual answer at that time, like, what, what are you talking about? He says these words. He says, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered, Jesus said to them. You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant those places belong to those for whom they've been prepared for my, by my Father. He kind of talked about this cup that he had to drink, and this was the cup here. We know about James and John, 
we know that James was martyred for his faith. And John, they tried to kill him, but God had different plans, and, and uh, he was spared and wrote uh, the book of Revelation, as well as the gospel of John and the letters of John. Verse 39 says this, Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. But the truth of the matter is, He came to save us. He didn't need to save Himself, did He? I mean, what did He need to be saved from? He needed no saving. He came and He, he went to that cross to save us, to save me, to save you. And they said to him, come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. And he could have done that, but, but he had already settled the matter in the Garden of Gethsemane with the Father that there was no other way. He says, Father, if it's possible for this cup to pass for me, if there's any other way, but not my will, but yours be done. And so he had settled that with the Father that he would do whatever the Father wanted. And, and, and there was no other way. Mankind needed saving. Jesus didn't need saving. Mankind needed saving. And this was the only way that it could take place. And even in the midst of that, then you have people mocking him. Mocking him because of him, the love that he had and dying in our place. Mocking him. And, and the truth is that still happens today, does it not? People mocking Jesus Christ. Using his name as a, as a swear word. Verse 41 says, in the same way, the chief priests, you had people that were walking by mocking him. Now the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders, they mocked him as well. But look what they said. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross now and we, be we will believe in him. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Would they really? If he had come down off the cross then, would they have believed in him? No, they would have put him back up there again. They are the ones that put him there, you see. What about when he rose from the dead? Would they believe then? But how many of us say the same thing? Let us see and then we'll believe. If only we'll see, then we'll believe. Let it happen the way I want it to happen, and then I'll believe. Kind of like Thomas, right? You remember Thomas? One of the disciples, he said, unless I see, unless I see, unless I see those marks in the hand and touch the place in the side, I will not believe. Someone said these words, they claimed they would have believed if he had come down. We believe because he stayed up. We believe because he stayed up, because he stayed on that cross for you and for me to the very end. Verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. How little they knew or understood. It was because he did trust in God, in the Father. 
that he went to the cross. That's why he was there. Not to be, not to come down off there, not to be rescued from the cross, but that's why he was there, you see. And finally, verse 44, it says, In the same way the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. It was the people who passed by. It was the chief priests, the elders, and, and the teachers of the law, the spiritual quote-unquote leaders, but even those who were crucified next to him. But one of them, one of them had a change of heart. So I want you to turn with me and we'll finish over in Luke chapter 23 again. Luke chapter 23 and verse 39. It says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. You see, it says in, in Matthew that, that they both heaped insults on him. They both mocked him and, and said things about him. But something happened in the life of this man here. Something happened in this man's heart. While he still had a chance, his death was imminent. His death was right there, uh, would be within a matter of, of hours. And he had a change in heart, and he's there now. And, and, and you see these two, one on either side, one continuing to, to, to insult, but, but the other one has, has this thing that happens. And, and he says these words, we are punished justly for we are getting what our, our deeds deserve. And, and, and then he says in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. I'd say that he kind of pushed it to the limit, don't you think? Just in the nick of time, he made this he made this change of heart. The other one did not. We'll talk a little bit more about, about some of the things about this, but the truth of the matter is, is that, that he, was, he was saved by Jesus Christ. He was promised paradise for what? For simply turning to Jesus Christ, simply turning and saying, remember me, that's all he did. He wasn't baptized. He didn't do any good works, right? He didn't list the things, the good things that he'd done. In fact, he listed the bad things that he'd done, and he says, you know what, this is what I deserve. He had never received communion. Nothing that, that he had done would prepare him for paradise. Not all people are saved. We see that too. We see one who rejects Jesus Christ and one who turns to him. He didn't say, you both will be with me in paradise. He said, the one will be. Makes me think, doesn't... Uh, I hope it makes you think, too, about this, this meeting at the, at the end of our lives. What is it going to be all about? Like, we, like the, the question that Pilate has, well, what do you want me to do then with Jesus, who is the Christ, who's called the Christ? What do you want me to do with this Jesus? What should I do? The question is, that's the... 
the question for all mankind, and that's what we need to do, is turn to him and say, Jesus, remember me. Jesus, remember me. Don't just sit and watch, but fall down and worship. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I tell you the truth, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. We had, you know, there's so many things about this, but I'm thinking about, you know, in the news this week, you know, a a famous man who was very, very wealthy, Stephen Jobs, died. And he had done so many things and created so many things. But we don't know what happened at the end of his life when he was facing death. Previously, we do know that he was professed to be a Buddhist. But, but uh, all the, the money in the world that he had could not help him. All the, uh, the innovations that he had come up with and his creativity and, and, and all these things that he had could not help him in that moment when he left this world and went to the next. There's only one thing, and and we do not know. I, I can't say whether he turned to Jesus Christ or not. None of us will know that for sure here and now. But we see this man here. He had simple words. He said, Jesus, remember me. That's what makes the difference for you and for me. Shall we pray?